Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. My name is Enrique Alvarez, and today I have a really interesting human being. He has done amazing things and uh, was honored with the Ethical Corporations 2019 Business Leader of the Year. He has a lot of things to share. He goes sometimes by Don Pablo, but we'll... Uh, better known here in the U.S. by Paul Rice, founder and CEO at Fairtrade USA. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm excited to have you. Uh, you and I met at the Conscious Capitalism event a couple of years ago, and we have had the opportunity to hang out for two years in a row. Hopefully, we can make that three and four and five every time that, I mean, you have so much to uh, offer, and it's always very interesting. But before we dive into your uh, amazing career, and uh, changing people's lives. Just tell us a little bit more about you. Who, who, are, who is Paul? <laughs> we need a bottle of Nicaraguan Flor de Caña rum to... Uh, I would take you on that offer. Next time we see each other, we'll go uh, through the rum route. But just briefly, I mean, where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, so I was um, born and raised in Texas, actually. Born in Dallas, grew up in Austin, went back to Dallas for high school. Uh, as, a, as a high school student, started to get interested in issues of uh, social justice, and um, um, my family traveled a lot, especially to Mexico, so I grew up kind of seeing the reality of other countries from a very early age, and so I went off to college, uh, went to Connecticut uh, for, for college, and um, ended up studying economics and political science, and got very interested in international development, and uh, and global poverty and how to fix it. And that became my passion from, uh, you know, age 18 and um, um, had a chance to go to Nicaragua in uh, 1982 for the first time to uh, study the, the land reform and the cooperative movement there and, and uh, fell in love with the place. And it so, must, have, must have been an amazing uh, experience. And uh, I'll jump back a little bit to your earlier days before we jump into okay. Nicaragua. But you, before we started recording, you mentioned that, uh, yeah, well, you mentioned that you were in Mexico before we started recording. You mentioned that you just came back from Mexico, yeah. uh, an amazing, beautiful uh, beach town that I didn't know about. Uh, what was the name of it? Just so we can have it. Uh, Sayulita, Sayulita, Mexico. Sayulita, Mexico. If anyone is listening to this, uh, Sayulita, Mexico, Paul recommends. Great, great place. It's just an hour north of uh, Puerto Vallarta and uh, great whale watching, surfing, all the things. It's Certified great. by Don Pablo. Yeah, exactly. So uh, going back, so tell us a little bit like a one story or two of your early years, something that kind of shaped who you are. I mean, you told us a little bit about your uh, your upbringing and that you traveled a lot and your passion for uh, changing the world. But any kind of story that kind of started showing you the man that you would later become? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, uh, my growing up years were, were, were hard. Uh, my father left our family when I was a year old and uh, never returned. And so my mom, at the age of 37, found herself with three kids, no education, no job, no money, and no man. 
and wow. decided that she was going to never depend on someone else for her livelihood again. She got a job. She enrolled in college, uh, got her bachelor's, master's, and PhD over the next 10 years wow. while, while raising me and my two sisters. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I've always felt like I had a front row seat on the original Wonder Woman show. You know, yeah. my mom was uh, my only parent, and she was amazing, and I feel so blessed to have had her as a role model, uh, a woman that worked incredibly hard, that had progressive values, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s around things like race and gender and the war in Vietnam and all of those things. And so I, I was imprinted with a very progressive um, mindset uh, from an wow. early age. And, you know, because we were poor, I started working when I was 11, uh, first shining shoes, then mowing lawns. But I had a knack. I had an entrepreneurial streak. And so um, um, a couple of years into lawn mowing, I figured out a way to penetrate the, the higher end neighborhoods and get paid <laughs> much for the same amount of work. And then I hired some other boys my age and, you know, had hired hands, basically. And by the time I was 16, I had saved up enough to buy a house. And wow. uh, I, with I, this I, landscaping, well, started like a lawn mowing, but guessing it became much larger down the road. Yeah, I mean, it was mostly lawn mowing, man. It was, you know, that is awesome. <laughs> it was hard work, but I saved. And uh, at 16, I bought a house. My mother co-signed because I was a minor and I became a landlord at 16. And um, I flipped that a few years later and um, was able to pay for uh, the rest of my education at Yale with the profits that I made on that. So I, wow. from, from an early age, I learned the value of hard work, but I also exercise this entrepreneurial energy that, um, you know, was already bubbling up in, in me from an early age and which, you know, today in my current role as a social entrepreneur and, uh, and leader of, a, uh, of the fair trade movement, I find that my, uh, my entrepreneurial energy is still very much engaged on a regular basis. And we can talk more about that in a minute. No, but th that's fantastic. And thank you very much for sharing. I mean, first and foremost, what's your mom's name? Amazing woman. Ruth Rice. Ruth Rice, wow! Ruth Rice. Here's my mama. Uh, sounds unbelievable. <laughs> I think that uh, what she accomplished uh, under such circumstances—it's just something not everyone can can pull off, right? Yeah, yeah. That's really good. And you're the you're the what's uh, you're the older of? I'm of the youngest. I'm the the baby. So you're the baby. So you had three moms basically by by yeah, then. Exactly. Yeah, and um, yeah, my mama passed away three years ago at the age of ninety-five. Wow, I'm sorry, uh, sorry to hear that. With me and my sisters at her bedside at home. So she had an amazing life and, uh, and she had a great death. And I, I think of her every day and I've got her picture looking at me right here on my desk. Well, I'm pretty sure she must be incredibly proud of, of you. And uh, she sounds like a terrific mom. Uh, do you remember something kind of when you were younger, when you were at 11, kind of working your first job? Anything that she probably told you, something that that you have probably extracted a lot of energy to keep up or? You know, she worked very hard and showed me by example, example. The, value, the value of hard work and, and the value of saving and, um, and eventually the value of investing. You know, I, I think I learned all of those things from her in those very young, young years. And, uh, and it was not, you know, by talking, but mostly by doing, she was, uh, you know, she, she modeled, um, she modeled that behavior for me. And uh, obviously, you know, she was uh, very formative in my life. 
Well, uh, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. Uh, again, congratulations. Sounds like you had a, an amazing mom. Thank you. you received an MBA at Yale Economics and Political Science. So how, MBA, how did that the happen? Was later. The MBA was later. My BA, uh, my bachelor's degree was at Yale. Yeah. And, um, and I focused on economics and political science. And frankly, when I, when I finished my four years at Yale, I was certain I would never go back to school for a master's degree. <laughs> the MBA is later in the story. That was definitely uh, a surprise for myself as well. Moving on to, to your career a little bit, tell us a, a little bit more. I know that you started this lawn mowing business very early on. What came next after the lawn mowing, the flipping of the house? Uh, you know, after college, um, like I said, I'd been in Nicaragua for, uh, um, for a, a three-month stint in between my junior and senior years in college. And was it like a I, mission mission trip or what was no, that thing? No, I was doing research. I was researching uh the land reform and food policy oh, wow. and uh i lived on a co-op in uh, in the countryside and did a lot of oral histories with farm workers who had received land uh during the land reform uh program and uh and it formed a cooperative and so i was looking at um uh, productivity uh land and labor productivity on cooperatives versus non-cooperative farms so there was an academic, this was for my senior thesis at Yale, there was an academic, you know, reason right. to be there, but, but really I was just there because there was a revolution going on. <laughs> I was uh, very excited about that and I uh, wanted to learn and I uh, fell in love with Nicaragua. And so a couple of months after graduation in 1983, I bought a one-way ticket to Nicaragua and I went back. Wow. And, uh, and I ended up staying for 11 years and it became, you know, the kind of the first chapter of my career. Uh, I spent that time way up in the mountains in northern uh, Nicaragua in uh, a region called the Segovias, uh, which is a, a coffee-producing region. Some of the best coffee in the world is grown up there. And um, I had a chance to work on a lot of different uh, development projects, right? International development projects that were designed by very well-intentioned smart people, you know, in USAID and different development agencies and, and, and non-governmental organizations around the world, um, you know, usually involved millions of dollars in development aid to support these projects. And I worked on a lot of these projects for, for a number of years. And um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I got to um, work with farmers, uh, you know, wearing blue jeans and cowboy boots and riding up into the hills on horses and motorcycles and visiting with farmers, helping to organize farmers, helping to uh, teach, you know, basic management skills uh, right. and, and budgeting and finance skills to, to farmers there. And um, I met my wife, my, my wife-to-be, a beautiful Nicaraguan woman who was also very involved in uh, the social movement there and, and uh, Marisol. And uh, we had our, our son, Emiliano. Uh, there in Nicaragua as well, and you know, I, uh, it was a, it was a great life. And um, uh, at the same time, over time, I, I began to feel increasingly disappointed and and even discouraged with this um, traditional model of of aid, right? Uh, this right. top down model where well intentioned governments and agencies send millions of dollars to help alleviate poverty um, through economic grassroots economic development and yet more often than not in my personal experience anyway uh we didn't really help farmers 
develop their own capacity to solve their own problems. I think more often than not, we um, actually create a dependency on foreign aid. Is that, is that, I'm guessing, a little bit the reason why you started your first venture, uh, Prodecop Coffee Export Cooperative? It, Did it I pronounce not. that? Is it Prodecop? Prodecop? Yeah. Depending uh, on Spanish, English? <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I was, I was so um, discouraged with that model of development aid that I um, started looking around at other, um, uh, other, other approaches. And kind of by accident, um, in, in, in 1990, I heard from a friend about the fair trade movement. And uh, fair trade at that time was big in Europe. Uh, there wasn't really much happening in the United States. Uh, a couple of companies, Equal Exchange and some others, but there was no real fair trade movement in the US the way there was in Europe. And uh, it was interesting that you know the fair trade people had a slogan, trade not aid, trade which, not Which aid. speaks exactly to your earlier point, right? Exactly. All right, show us. Don't like, buy from us. Don't is, give us money. People don't need our charity. They yeah. just need us to pay them a fair price, you know, for all their hard work and for the harvest that they that they uh, that they produce. And so that was a very compelling idea to me. I, I you know I've never met a farmer that wants our charity. Farmers just want right. a fair return. Right. So um, long story short, I ended up organizing Nicaragua's very first fair trade cooperative uh, with twenty coffee farmers. And we that first year we filled one container of coffee. Wow! With, uh, 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 one container with fair, with coffee, and we shipped it to a fair trade buyer, who paid us a um, dollar a pound after cost, a dollar a pound for our farmers uh, at a time when uh, the local market price was ten cents a pound. Wow! It so makes such a huge difference. Plus, there's so much margin in the especially coffee supply chain that it's totally worth it, right? Yeah, I mean, we were literally getting our farmers. 10 times more than what their neighbors were getting. And, and just to like break this down, I was working with very, very, very small, poor farmers, people with one acre, maybe two acres of land. The average harvest volume was 2,000 pounds of coffee a year. So one ton, 2,000 pounds. So if, if they got 10 cents a pound, you know, wow. their neighbors were getting 10 cents a pound, that was $200 total cash income for, for the year. Not wow. even a dollar a day, not even a dollar a day. And our farmers that year got a dollar a pound. So on average, they were getting $2,000. Most wow. of them had never seen that much money ever in their lives. And so, uh, you know, I was a very popular guy that first season. Um, and I got a new nickname that year. People started calling me Pablo Undola. Pablo Undola. I like that. dollar Paul because that was my mantra. Join the co-op and we can pay you a dollar a pound. And... Um, that led to uh, over the next four years that I led the co-op that led to us organizing 3000 wow. families. We went from 20 families to 3000 families all over Northern Nicaragua uh, who brought their coffee together. We milled it, uh, we controlled the quality and we exported it direct jumping over the middlemen and by exporting direct to uh, fair trade buyers. Uh, we also went was that in Europe, I imagine, right? The first container was going to Europe since Europe had already Europe, the movement. Yeah, the U.S. Was, did not have this movement yet, right? Exactly. exactly. Um, so, you know, we were able to develop a multi-million dollar coffee wow. business that was delivering um, extraordinary income back to our family, right? I mean, our families were getting so much more money by virtue of this direct form of trade and by virtue of the fair trade um, uh, premiums that we were getting that they were able to stay on the land first and foremost and not have yeah. to immigrate. 
uh, they were able to feed their families three times a day because sometimes poor families get meals because they, you know, they have no choice. Uh, we dug wells in communities for the first time and brought, brought clean drinking water to the families, which immediately improved health. We created a scholarship program so that kids could go on to high school and eventually on to college. We started an organic certification program. And so many of our farmers became sustainable farmers uh, and organic certified. We, we reforested hillsides that had been deforested by transnational lumber companies a generation earlier. Um, you know, in short, we did all of this really cool stuff. And, and here's the punchline. Thanks to nobody's charity. Right. right? It was just like a fair price for what they were exactly. doing. Thanks. Yeah. A fair return through a more direct connected supply chain and uh, and through the fair trade movement. And so, you know, the, the thing that excited me the most was how proud people were, you know, the, the hope and the pride and the dignity and the self-confidence uh, of people who previously had seen themselves as victims of globalization and through this journey became co-owners of a multi-million dollar right. coffee export company that was delivering extraordinary value and hope for the future. Wow. That's, I mean, must have been incredible, not only to be the catalyst of something so amazing, but then just to be there to witness it. Because you mentioned that you started uh, in, uh, in 90, in the early 90s, and then you did this for how long? Like 10 years? And what Four point, years. well, before we, so what point did you start uh, Fair Trade USA? Well, let me get to that. Yes. Um, so, so I led this co-op for the last four years that I was in Nicaragua, um, from 90 to 94. Wow. And honestly, you know, this experience completely changed my life and, and completely changed how I viewed the market and the world of business in the effort to improve the lives of poor people around the world. Before this experience, I really didn't think the market had much to offer. In fact, I thought business because it's profit oriented was more the problem than the solution to the plight of poor coffee farmers. What I learned through this experience was that markets and business can actually be quite possibly the most powerful lever for change and the right. power, most powerful tool for enabling the world's poor on a journey out of progress. And, um, You know, I witnessed it. I was a part of it. It wasn't theoretical. It was very practical. And so, you know, I think that was when I started to see myself as a conscious capitalist and as someone who had found a way to kind of harness the power of the market for social and environmental good. And so at that point, 11 years in Nicaragua, Nicaraguan wife, Nicaraguan son, I was Pablo. I didn't think I was ever going to come back to the U.S. But at that point, I had an epiphany. And, that, and the epiphany was I had a calling to see if I could take the fair trade movement from Europe and bring it to the U.S. Right. To see, if I, to, to see if I could adapt that model, which worked for the European market and the European consumer. No one had really tried to adapt it at scale to the U.S. So I came back to do that. And, you know, I, uh, you mentioned my MBA earlier. When I first came back, I just I felt like I needed to learn the tools of business. Right. Uh, I'd been running a, 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 an export company in Nicaragua, so I'd kind of learned doing, but I didn't feel like my depth of knowledge was enough to be able to build a fair trade movement in the U.S. So I came back to California. I got an MBA at uh, UC Berkeley's House School of Business. Nice. Uh, it was an amazing ride. It really felt like coming home. 
coming back to coming to Berkeley um, because there was a very strong entrepreneurship uh, program here. Not so much social entrepreneurship, uh, but remember, this was like 2004 to 2006. So the Internet was taking off. A lot of my classmates were starting tech ventures. And so there was there was just a, uh, you know, a, a, an environment of creativity and um, and, and risk taking and exploration uh, uh, around uh, entrepreneurial endeavor that uh, I thrived on. And in fact, I wrote the business plan for Fairtrade USA in my second year MBA entrepreneurship class, and um, and then launched uh, Fairtrade USA in uh, in 1998. And so for um, and for people that might not know exactly what Fairtrade USA is, could you just tell us a little bit more about the yeah. actual organization and how it works and what you guys are set up to do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Fairtrade USA is um, um, kind of the the uh, the hub of the U.S. fair trade movement. Um, we are a nonprofit organization, um, relatively small, 180 employees, uh, 25 million dollars in revenue. Uh, but we, I like to think of us as the kind of center of an hourglass. You know, the skinny part of an hourglass. So above us, the market. We work with 1,500 mm. uh, major corporations uh, from Whole Foods to Walmart, Safeway, Costco, all the major companies, and then lots of brands as well. Um, we have 66% consumer awareness of our Fairtrade certified seal. Oh, wow. You've probably, you've probably seen our seal, Fairtrade certified. On I love that you have all these prompts, by the way, that you're showing. Right. You're the first, the, the only one that has done first that. I have props, bro. Amazing. <laughs> that's, that's the way to, to go. We, um, uh, you know, we last year we were able to catalyze an $11 billion market, $11 billion in wow. product sales here in the U.S. with our label on it. And so that's kind of the top of the hourglass. And then the other side of the hourglass are all the farmers that we work with around the world. Of course, I started in Nicaragua, but today we're in 51 countries in Africa, in Asia, in Latin wow. America. Uh, we... We work in coffee, we work in tea and sugar and chocolate and fresh fruits and vegetables. We work in um, uh, seafood and dairy and now apparel and home goods and other factory-made goods. Um, and um, uh, today we're working with, yeah, like over a million, uh, just over a million farmers and workers in, in 51 countries. So what do we do concretely? What is Fair Trade USA? Um, you know, our main role is to define fair trade, right? To define the fair trade standard. Uh, yeah, fair trade's a philosophy, it's a movement, right. but also a standard, like the organic standard. Right. So we have a checklist of 300 compliance criteria that, that address labor issues on the farm or in the factory, that address social issues, that address environmental issues. So all the stuff that you would imagine, right? Like living wage and no child labor and no slave labor and worker safety and health and environmental impact all those things are in the fair trade standard and our farms and factories and fisheries get audited every year and if they pass the audit then they're certified and are eligible to sell with the fair trade label, label. On their package. and on the other side of the market the companies we work with all these brands uh, and retailers agree to pay more money so that's the secret sauce of fair trade you know, and you would also open your network to them so if a Farmer somewhere get certified, you will also funnel him through to the companies that you're already working with you, which exactly. I'm guessing it's a really, really 
win-win for everyone. Exactly. Matchmaking, supply and demand is a key part of what we do. Absolutely. But wow. it, it's interesting because there's so many approaches to socials, uh, uh, social auditing and, uh, you know, their codes of conduct. And, um, you know, most of the efforts out there uh, are essentially asking suppliers to be more responsible, to right. be more sustainable. But the costs are your problem. The costs are the supplier's problem. Like most companies don't say, supplier, if you produce in a more responsible way, if you pay your workers a living wage, we, the buyer, will pay you more money. We'll reward right. you for that. Fair trade model does exactly that. And that's what makes us unique. Our message to suppliers, to farm owners, factory owners is if you meet the fair trade standard, the market will pay you more. And we call that the fair trade premium. And last year, we delivered $100 million in fair trade premiums back wow. to all the farms and factories. And cumulatively, we've created over a billion dollars now in fair trade premiums back to the communities that we work with over the last now 24 years that we've been in business. So it's, it's, a, it, it's a really, just to finish the idea, oh, please. it's a really different idea than top-down charity, right? right? Our, our, our approach to improving the lives of farmers and workers and to protecting the environment and reducing uh, the climate impact is by enlisting companies and consumers to reward those those responsible suppliers, and 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 so the 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 end result is better livelihoods for hardworking families all around the world, and for us as consumers, we get to feel good knowing that you know one package of coffee at a time. Here's Allegro, Patriot. I coffee, love that. On it, one package of coffee at a time. We're changing the world. Well, and, and on top of that, it sounds to me that it's uh, also profitable and. Uh, for companies that are doing this because there's a willingness to pay what you call the fair trade premium already. So some of, all of a sudden, you'll be able to not only attract better employees, better uh, you'll be able to attract better customers. You'll become like a higher end brand. You'll actually, so it's not they're just, again, paying more for the sake of paying more. I'm pretty sure that they right. see it by now that paying more for this kinds of things will in return yield a much, much uh, larger profit for them as well. Well, I'm really glad you raised that because that speaks to our theory of change. Right. My my message to um, you know to Patagonia or to PepsiCo or to Whole Foods or to Walmart, my message isn't take a profit hit in order to help your farmers and your workers. That's not my message. My message is anchored in a theory that Michael Porter at Harvard uh, described as shared value. And the idea of shared value is that we go beyond the fixed pie mentality where we're just fighting over the size of our slice right? to an expansive mentality where new value is created through a different approach to business. And that new value is shared by the stakeholders in the model. And so my hypothesis at Fairtrade USA is that if companies do fair trade, it'll be good for business. And so the farmers win. But business also wins as well. And so you, you just spoke to a couple of the attributes. For one, it gives the brand uh, or the retailer a brand halo. It gives them a message to tell the consumer. And, you know, overwhelmingly, consumers say they want more responsible and sustainable products, especially Gen Z and millennial consumers. So that's number one, right? That's, if you will, benefit number one for the business community um, uh, of fair trade. Number two, and your audience will really appreciate this. Supply chain resilience. Everyone's yep. worried about supply chains these days. 
Well, you know, if you're Starbucks or Pete's, you need to ensure a reliable supply of high quality beans. Fair trade helps you do that because guess what? When you pay the farmers a premium, they give you their best beans. They prioritize you and their deliveries. If they ever stock out, you're not going to be the one to suffer. I mean, it's just logical. There's a, a degree of loyalty in the fair trade transaction that makes supply chains more uh, resilient and more reliable. We're doing a pilot with Walmart right now on, on fair trade tomatoes. And it's really interesting because um, uh, when we designed the pilot, and by the way, you know, a pilot for Walmart means Walmart today is the largest seller of fair trade tomatoes in the world. <laughs> that, that is so that is incredible, by the way. Congratulations. <laughs> but, we're, you know, we're doing a pilot with Walmart on tomatoes. And when we started it, we, they, they wanted to design a dashboard of KPIs that we would be tracking. And, of course, it was looking at the benefits to the farmers from the fair trade premium and all of those things. But then they, they wanted to put in some other things. They wanted to put in productivity. Like, is a fair trade farm more productive than a non-fair trade farm? They wanted to put in worker retention. Wow. You know, is a fair trade farm able to retain their workforce in higher numbers than non-fair trade farms? And at one point in this com early conversation, I said to them, why do you care? I mean, why do you care about productivity and worker retention? You don't own the farm. Right. Right. You're buying from a supplier who's buying from the farm. If the farm loses its workforce and can't deliver, your supplier will find another another farm to buy from. Why do you care? And it was really interesting. I learned so much that day. Walmart said, we need a reliable, secure, resilient supply chain, you know, to meet the growing demand that we project in the future. So we care about the farms. We care about productivity. We care about worker retention and all of these other uh, attributes because we want to identify farms that will work for the for us into the future. We want to support them and we want to partner with them for the long term. And so that wow. means caring about the things that they care about. And that blew me away. Okay, so I'm going to share a couple of numbers with you well, from, please this, do. from this pilot because you know we're two years in now, and so uh, and it was only tomatoes, right? Or there's other things that are included. Well, this we, was we just for the things. tomato farms. No, we do more with Walmart. Right. Uh, Walmart uh, does a lot of fair trade coffee. Oh, for right. example. We do some other things with Walmart, but this was our first venture into fresh produce with Walmart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously it gives us a template in the future to look at, you know, bananas and bell peppers and avocados and all the things. Okay. So we're two years into the pilot and we're seeing worker retention rates at 87% on these farms. Wow versus 60% industry average. And, and what does that mean, worker retention? It means, you know, at the end of the harvest, people go home, uh, and then do they come back? And the reason why this is so important, number one, there are labor shortages throughout U.S. agriculture and Mexican agriculture, which is where the farms are located, both in the U.S. and Mexico. Um, so if a farm owner doesn't get all the workers back the next season, it means their recruitment costs go up. They have to look for labor. It means their training costs go up. They have to train right. the workers. And typically productivity is not as high because those workers are just learning the business. And so what we're finding is that, and it just makes sense. These workers are getting the fair trade premium. They're getting benefits. Right. Why, would, why would they leave you? They're treating them fairly and they feel valued. And So the worker retention rates are so much higher and the productivity is higher. And so, you know, that is a, a strong 
benefit both for the farm owners and then in Walmart's eyes, okay, these are stronger suppliers. This is a more resilient supply chain. So we're, you know, we're so excited about this pilot because Walmart has just told us, you know, we're, it's no longer a pilot. It's a program. And that's let's great. Or now how to ramp it up. Congratulations. So, you know, thank you. Thank you. You know, that's another uh, attribute. You know, when I think about building a shared value model workers and, and the environment, but also helps the business world. You know, we talked about sales. We talked about supply chain resilience. And then, you know, the reputational piece, because right. there are no more secrets in the global supply chain. You know, if a, if a factory collapses, oh. workers are crushed, or if child labor is exposed on, a, on farms, sooner or later, you know, because every farmer and worker in the world has one of these, right? And so sooner or later, that will be exposed and it will damage the reputation right. of the end of the retailer that's buying. And it doesn't matter. If you're directly responsible, the public will hold you responsible. Especially now, because you mentioned like new generations. And I think this has clearly been changing over time. And you have children. I have children as well. For for my children in particular, they're not going to see this as a nice thing to do. I Actually, I argued the other day that they don't see this as premiums. It's not the fair trade premium. It's not the sustainability premium for them. This is the only product that I have. There's no, they're starting to not even see or, or, or entertain products that are, even though in the same category, yeah. they are not fair trade, sustainable, good companies, uh, responsible, purpose driven. Exactly. No, it's so true. It's so true. Reputation matters. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book now, by the way. What? Go ahead. What, what is the, do you have I'm a title a yet? Trade. I figure, you know, I've been in this movement now for 35 years. I've earned the right to write a book about it. And uh, one of the chapters in the book is Reputation Matters. And it's just about how, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, companies could get away with right. not really paying attention to the conditions in their supply chain. Um, but today, um, you know, because there's more transparency. Yeah, you can't hide, right? You can't hide from what's going on. And it will affect your reputation if, you know, bad stuff, uh, you know, becomes public. And so more and more, I mean, I think a lot of companies are joining kind of the conscious capitalism movement right, right. and are embracing sustainability and social responsibility for, for good reason, for values. But, you know, other companies, um, for better, for worse, they're also embracing better practices because they don't want to be stumped. By a by a scandal, by a child labor scandal in their supply chain. So, no, definitely. You know, it's a, it's a strategic. It's a, yeah, it's a strategic competitive advantage, as you mentioned, with a lot of uh, upside for companies that apply this principle. So you're you're absolutely right. I think it has come from being nice or social about something, and it's become like a key competitive uh, driver that's going to fuel uh, your your profits. So yeah. Fair Trade USA, amazing story, 35 years in the making and growing fast. Uh, two things. So you have more now than 30 product categories that you certify, correct? Yeah. How do you think about, because you have everything from coffee to tomatoes to, I mean, how are you thinking about adding the new categories? Uh, is there like a strategy or process behind behind that? Yeah, there is. And, and primarily it's um, it's market driven. So, um, you know, our, our latest, uh, our, our latest new categories are cosmetics and footwear. And it wasn't because we woke up one day and said, hey, the workers in right. the cosmetic industry are exploited and they need our help. Rather, 
it was a market leader, uh, Elf, E-L-F, um, that, you know, is a multi-billion dollar brand and they sell in Target and Walmart. And, you know, it's kind of um, uh, an accessible price point uh, product, uh, especially for young women. And um, so it's a great match for us in terms of the audience that we want to reach. Uh, it's not a super elite brand. It's, um, you know, it's, it, and it's a, a, a targeting a younger consumer. And so we were excited when they came to us and said, we see what you're doing in apparel and home goods with Patagonia and J. Crew and Gap and Pottery Barn. Can you take that model and adapt it to the world of cosmetics? And so, you know, we did the research. We developed the, uh, the, the, the module, an extra module in the standard for, for cosmetics. And we launched with ELF. Um, uh, I think we certified their factories last year and we launched with them last month. So actually, the, you know, the, the, uh, the rollout is underway. And that's just hugely exciting to me because I think that's going to create a ripple right. effect where other uh, cosmetics brands are going to look at this lighthouse brand that has gone first uh, and, um, and then want to emulate it. And so that's very much a part of our growth strategy is to identify the right brands to partner with first. And then to create a dynamic where other companies want to come along and join. Well, and it's exciting to see, you probably mentioned it, that companies, it's not probably like it was 20, 15 years ago, like companies now are coming to you. So you're you're really going from like this, bringing the fair trade movement into the U.S. to really just becoming the standard uh, out there. And so a lot of companies are going to continue to come back to you, are going to continue to ask you to help them. And I'm very, it must be very exciting to be part of that change. And of course, I'm very proud that I have the the honor to speaking with you today. And I'm sure that a lot of people and companies out there will uh, reach out to you after the interview. And of course, as you finish your book, do you have any date to to kind of finish any? Oh uh, yeah, we're early stages. Self-imposed deadline. Yeah, we're very early stages. We just got a, our publishing deal with um, okay. Public Affairs. And uh, so we're just starting to write and uh, target publication next spring. So spring of 24. All right. Which, which will coincide with our 25th anniversary celebration. Well, congratulations for, for that as well. And before we kind of uh, leave you, I wanted to ask you a little bit and changing gears to the lessons learned, right? I mean, you have tell us a lot of things, but if you consider, and I'll ask you this question, if you consider your... Uh, current Paul Rice, Don Paul, what advice, and usually it's the other way around, right? It's like, what will your current self uh, advise your older self? But let's switch that around. What would the younger Don Pablo Undolar in uh, Nicaragua um, advise the current Paul Rice? What would he say? Always stay true to your values. All right, Paul, this is this is incredible. For people that are, that are listening to I, us. I'm going to add on to that. You know, my younger self would be dismayed that I spend my time talking to, you know, Doug McMillan at, at Walmart and, uh, you know, John Mackey at Whole Foods before he left. John just retired. But that's a lot of the work that I do, um, working with CEOs of major companies and on their sustainability journey, being a thought partner to them, obviously providing services to their companies, but also being a resource and a thought partner to, incredibly um, influential leaders in the in the American business community that are trying to figure out a way to overcome the historic trade-off between being profitable versus being sustainable, right? I think the mentality 
in the old way was either I can optimize profits right. from shareholders or I can be responsible and sustainable, but I can't do both at the same time. And the, the smart business leader today, the emerging mindset is, yes, you can be sustainable and support the success of the firm and be more competitive in the long term um, by caring by caring about responsibility and sustainability and baking that into the business model. And so I think we're in, you know, the early stages right. of a 50 year transition in capitalism from, uh, you know, greedy capitalism to conscious capitalism. And many of the leaders of that are people who have embraced fair trade and who I have access to. And so I, I get to hang out with, um, and, and, and be a, a, a thought partner to some pretty incredible business leaders. And so, you know, my 20 year old self would have said, oh, no, stay away from the big. Boy. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get you're, you're going to lose your your compass. You're going to lose your moral compass. And, you know, the reality is the business leaders that I work with, they share our values. They share yeah. a desire for the world to be more sustainable. They share the desire for the, far, the, 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 the kids of farmers and workers around the world to be able to stay in school. Uh, American business leaders don't want to burn up the planet. They, you know, they, they believe in, in growing numbers, not everyone, but more and more business leaders believe that business can and must be uh, a force for good. And so I'm really proud that I get to bring my values to work every day and I get to help other business leaders do the same. And so I think, you know, my 20-year-old my self would be a little skeptical. And so I hear him all the time, <laughs> you know, staying, staying as a values-driven leader. And what I love is that, you know, I don't feel alone at all. Quite the contrary. I feel like this is becoming the new normal in the business community where business leaders, you know, figure out a way to use their businesses for good. Well, I cannot think of a better way to end this interview. I mean, that was incredibly thoughtful and I completely agree with you. It's refreshing to hear that companies and people that you work with on a day in and day out uh, basis are starting to change. Some of them are already there. Some of them are as, I guess, advanced when it comes to fair trade as, as you are and your organization is. So, Paul, for anyone that's listening to us that actually want to learn more about you, want to learn more about Fair Trade USA, want to maybe go through the certification process, where, where can they connect? What what can they do to get to know you and your organization better? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for I, I would love to connect with any of, of um, your listeners uh, who are interested in exploring Fair Trade. Uh, our website is um, www.fairtradecertified.org. Um, Fair Trade USA is the name of the organization. I'm on LinkedIn. Would be happy to connect with anyone, um, and you know, and and, and be um, a source of support to businesses that are looking to bring greater sustainability into their supply chains. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure uh, for anyone listening to this episode. If you like conversations like the one we just had with Paul, please uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.